Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Again, the night watches there are significant things that happen in the night watches. And that's why we're supposed to be alert in the night watches, or we will miss those things. We will not hear properly. You know, we've got uh, Shavuot approaching. We have the story of Boaz and Ruth that are traditionally read during Shavuot. And just as we looked at uh, the judgment on the firstborn at Passover as being about midnight, the changing from the first watch of the night to the second watch of the night. This is about the time that Gideon's army attacks the Midianites and overturns their tents. Um, The changing from the first watch to the second watch, this is when they attack. When does Boaz discover Ruth? He discovers her around midnight. And so he waits. She she lies there with him all night. And then, as he realizes the dawn is about to break, Boaz does not want her to be seen. Obviously, there's a modesty aspect to this. Uh, That's the more practical explanation. But again, he does not want her to remain there until the daybreak, until that third watch is over. And so he loads her down. Usually the translation will say six measures of barley, He has her hold her veil, and he measures out six measures of barley. But if you read it carefully, it really only says six barleys, like six little grains of barley. You think it didn't really take a veil to just hold six grains of barley. But the the number here seems to be very important. The number six has to do with the sixth grade of creation when the beasts were created, and then man was created, right? So by the time we get to Revelation, we've got this number 666, and it's reminding us that we need to be able to separate the man from the beast. So who would be the man or the woman? Who would fail uh, to commit to the commandments? And the daybreak. Well, a beast, a beast doesn't have that same covenant. It's the person who conforms himself or herself to the image of the beast. But what if you make this commitment, even in the third watch of the night, and you make that commitment before the daylight? It's in the third watch of the night, time has passed. So we see here the the changing of the night watch from the first to the second watch when they encounter one another. And then to make sure that Boaz Boaz is making sure that Ruth understands he's, he's making a commitment as far as he can commit at this point. He says, there's one other who could redeem you. There's one other who could marry you. And I'll have to go to the gates and uh, settle this this part of the legal proceedings. But until that happens, take these six barleys as a sign of my commitment to you. 
that I'm going to do everything I can to separate you from the nations. You're a Moabite. We need to look into the Torah. You know, we're not allowed to marry a Moabite. So they had to look into the Torah. And then they realized, and, and the ruling was, well, the Torah says that you can't marry a Midianite or Moabite male, but not the females. The females you may marry. It's permitted to marry a female. So they, they had to go to the city gates, which represents judgment, to look into that ruling. So if we see if Ruth is being redeemed from the nations, brought into the covenant, and not just brought into the covenant, brought in to be a bride, not just a, a gleaner, not just a servant, not just a field hand, but a full member of the community. It was the, it was the equivalent of a conversion in that day and time. And so the agreement is, is made. The commitment is made before the daylight with the understanding that, that Boaz is going to protect her even after the day breaks even should the judgment set in that Boaz is going to do everything within his power to redeem her in those daylight hours. So there's nothing you can do in the watches of the night to show faithfulness and commitment to your bridegroom that will not be spoken of in the daylight. And that's a beautiful picture. So we're going to skip forward a little bit just to affirm Luke 17, 20. Yeshua says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So this blends very nicely with what he said about if somebody tells you the Messiah is out in the wilderness, don't go look. They tell you he's up in the closet, don't go look in the closet. You're going to already be in. The kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right in the midst of you. In other words, you're walking in the kingdom and you don't have an awareness of it. So don't look for the sign. Listen for the sign. Because the sign is not something new. The sign and the seal you received from Passover, and then you counted seven perfect sevens, then you entered into Shavuot, and it was there that you were sealed. You were sealed right there. And so you just have to hold what you got from Shavuot until the fall feast. What are you doing? You're awaiting a full resurrection. But it's just like the children of Israel. They were already existing in a semi-supernatural state. They just didn't perceive it. Um, and that's the deception, is that when Messiah comes, that... Uh, there will be these great signs and wonders and so forth, but then we're already warned. These things are going to be lies. They're going to be deceptions because your eyes can be deceived. But if you have made that commitment at Shavuot, if you have made that commitment at Mount Sinai, then you're not going to be deceived by anything you see because your faith will be built on what you heard. Your observation came with your hearing, just like Yeshua says, it's going to be a man and a woman talking in bed. It's going to be the sound of a baby nursing in the pre-dawn. These are things that will tell you the daylight has come. And at that time, when the daylight breaks, somehow you're already going to be in the kingdom. He says it's in your midst. 
you don't you don't have to go anyplace special right now if you can go to jerusalem for the feast should you absolutely but he knows he sent you into exile and he knows how difficult it can be for some people to go up to jerusalem for the feast he makes a, an earnest promise before the daylight breaks he's going to give you six barleys and the the span of the book of ruth it spans from the barley harvest at Pesach to the wheat harvest at Shavuot. That's why it's red then. So what is he doing? He's observing you during those seven perfect sevens. He's watching your perfection in the field. Whatever field he's put you in, he says, remain in my field. Don't go seeking out another field. Stay in his field. Don't go after the fields of the idols. Don't go to the places where... Uh, they're not doing things according to the word. Stay in his field. Stay in Messiah's field. If you're already in his field, then it's going to be no problem at all because he's observed you. He knows you're prepared for the kingdom. And even though there might be a few events that need to take place between Shavuot and the fall feast, he will give you those six barleys as a promise that yes, I still have to take care of some judgments in the gates, but I will take care of those judgments in the gates. Just trust me. And uh, you will not spend another night of exile alone. You will be a bride. So don't worry about the coming night of exile. And so this is important. If, if we see this as a pattern that Passover, it, it reminds us of our salvation in Yeshua. Counting the seven sevens, his teaching us, leading us out of idolatry, purifying us so that our hearts are ready to receive his covenant, to receive his word at Mount Sinai. So that at that point, now that there's full disclosure and he says, okay, you promised me you would keep the rules. You promised me you would be a bride. You followed after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. And so now I'm bringing you to the mountain and I'm going to give you disclosure of the terms of your covenant. And Ruth was perfectly willing. She received those six barleys. And so at that point, she was like what we're saying about the, the footprints, the footprints, the footsteps of Messiah, that it seems to be coming in stages, that certain things are still happening in certain stages, just like there are certain things happening at the feasts. Each feast being a stage of preparation being uh, a particular action that all points toward ultimately the resurrection and then being gathered into the, the, the feasting hall for the marriage supper, for Sukkot. But the idea here is Yeshua is saying, just like Ruth, she really was already in the kingdom because back there when she told Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. Wherever you live, I will live. And it's, it's, you know, this idea that wherever you die, there I'll be buried, right? If Yeshua died and was buried for obedience, we say the same thing. We will die and be buried for obedience. We will follow you no matter what. We're not going to go back to the idols of the nations. And so at that point, you can see there's already that preliminary commitment now, maybe she hadn't yet learned all the fine points of the Torah. Maybe Naomi had to 
mentor 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 her or instruct her as to the laws of gleaning and gathering in the corners of the field. Uh, there are particular laws of gleaning. And um, Ruth learns those finer points. She's following everything to the letter, not because she thinks she's going to get anything out of it, because she's simply a servant. She just wants to serve her mother-in-law. She just wants to serve the God of Israel. So in that sense, even though she goes through stages in the story from wherever you go, I will go, to receiving the six barleys of Boaz's promise at Shavuot to becoming a bride and bearing the ancestor of King David. Each of those was a stage, but you can see there was the promise she gave Naomi, like a a Passover salvation. There was a promise of protection by Boaz on the threshing floor, symbolizing Shavuot. And at that point, she's actually sealed. He says, I'm going to take care of you, whether it's this guy or it's me. Be, you know, By accepting these six barleys, this is my promise that I will take care of you and I will sustain you until this particular time where the deal can be consummated, so to speak. And so that's the picture of us as believers at Mount Sinai. We perceive, we see in a lot of things with our eyes, but what did we see? We saw the words. It says they saw the voice of the shofar. They saw the words of the covenant. That's what they perceived was the word. And then we say we will do and we will hear. We will keep observing for these signs and the signs are the word. And when somebody looks at us for the sign of the kingdom, it's that we do and obey the word, that we are actually hearing the word. So we don't need for somebody to, you know, build an amusement park in the wilderness so everybody can go see the Messiah. No, the kingdom of heaven is within us. It's it's in the commitment we made when we were saved. It's in the, the sanctification of our faithful service. It's in our agreement. We will do and we will hear the covenant at Shavuot. We're already in the kingdom. Are there still some events to be fulfilled before we can sit down at the, at the marriage table? Yes. But we were promised, and it goes back to the seal, the seal of Shavuot, the seal of the commitment. And I think this is why so many of us, you know, we started out with the Sabbaths because that's a sign. That's the eternal seal is the Shabbat. We understood what Shabbat was all all about and how it, you know, every single week, that's our opportunity to do a sign that is observed with hearing. That's obedience, right? So we don't have to say, look, there's the Shabbat. We do the Shabbat. We become part of the Shabbat. And in that sense, we're already in the kingdom. We may not have sat down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob yet, but we are already in the kingdom. So Yeshua gives us this encouragement. 
Psalm 119, 145, it says, I cried out with all my heart, answer me, Lord, I will comply with your statutes. I will comply with your statutes. What is that? Obedience. All my heart, how are you supposed to love him? Shema Yisrael, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. What do you think David, King David was crying out with all his heart? Shema Yisrael, right? I will do, I will hear with all my heart, soul, and strength. I will comply with your statutes. I cry to you, save me, and I shall keep your testimonies. See the progression here? Passover, the Israelites were crying out for help, for salvation. They put the blood on the doorpost and it says, I will keep your testimonies. You've not revealed them all to me yet. We still have this journey to Mount Sinai, but I will keep your testimonies. This is good faith. He says, I rise before dawn and cry for help before dawn, not after. It goes back to our Shema picture. You try to say the Shema in the first watch of the night. But should you get into the second watch? Can you still cry for help? Yes. In the third watch, can you still cry for help? Yes. But when the daylight breaks, it's too late to affirm that Shema. Now, does that mean you can't you know, get it right tomorrow? Yes, but he's rehearsing us for a time where it might become very, very difficult. If you waited until the daylight and said, oh, I'll learn that lesson, I won't miss it tonight, it might be that it becomes extremely difficult for you to repair that. Because see, the, the repentance and saying, I messed up, I'll do it right. He wanted you to learn those things and correct them before that, that cup of iniquity was already full, when he has to go out and begin treading the grapes of wrath. So David's saying, I rise before dawn. Uh, even in the night of my exile, I'm not going to wait for the daylight. I'm not, not going to sit around and, and you know, wait, for, wait for a rapture or something. No, that's a, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture. You were supposed to be alert through the night watches. In the nights of your exile, you were supposed to be more alert than ever. And what are you doing in those night watches? You cry for help. And he says, I wait for your words. Your words. What are we learning in the night of our exile? His words. We will do and we will hear your words. David says, my eyes anticipate the night watches so that I may meditate on your word. Well, think about that. In the daylight, there's all sorts of distractions because you can see everything moving. Squirrel, <laughs> how many distractions do you have during the daytime that will distract you from prayer, that will distract you from studying the word, that will distract you from obeying the word? things that need to be done at certain times. And so David says, you know what? The perfect time is coming. It's the night watch because it's dark. I can't be distracted. I'm not going to be watching everything. And so in these night watches, even in this time of exile, it's the perfect time to meditate on his word. So he says, hear my voice according to your faithfulness. Now watch what happens. 
Revive me, Lord, according to your judgments. Now, that's not typically how we think of the resurrection. We don't think of judgments uh, as being a, a driving force behind the resurrection. But here, King David is saying that this immersion in the word, in the night watches, is going to be part of his resurrection. It's going to be part of that daylight of resurrection. And keeping these statutes and these judgments, they are going to have a huge impact on what happens next. And, you know, when we say someone has fallen asleep in Yeshua, don't think of it as being like sleep without any consciousness of whatsoever. There's evidence in scripture that there's absolutely a consciousness after we die. It's the body that cannot perform the thoughts of that consciousness, just like the rich man. He was thirsty, but he didn't have a tongue. He was hot, but he didn't have a body. So there's still a consciousness there, but you're asleep. Just like when you're asleep and you're dreaming at night, well, you're dreaming and you have a consciousness in those dreams, but your body's not responding. The best your body can do is, you know, maybe you'll run in place a little bit in bed. Maybe you'll roll around in the bed. Maybe you'll talk in your sleep. Or if the monster actually attacks, you know, you, you might start screaming. Uh, but your body's just not responding to your conscious, really, you know, your dream thoughts. This is what sleep is like. And so the soul continues to have a consciousness in sleep. And David is saying for the righteous, that sleep of death, there is still a meditation upon the word. And eventually it's going to be this meditation upon the word, which is going to take part in the resurrection from the dead. You imagine what, you know, Ruth and Boaz were both meditating upon in those night watches after they encountered about midnight. Well, there's still two watches of the night to go through. And it sounds to me as though they are both meditating upon the word. Boaz is thinking, what do I need to do next? What steps does the Torah tell me that I need to take next in order that, that I can make Ruth my bride? And Ruth is saying, what do I do now? What is she doing? She's waiting. Her eyes are anticipating these night watches. She says, I wait for your words. What's she doing on the threshing floor at night? She's waiting for Boaz's word, for him to tell her what to do next. He says, revive me, Lord, according to your judgment. Naomi is even about to be resurrected from the dead through Ruth's faithfulness to serve Boaz. Uh, so that's kind of an encouragement, is that even should you fall asleep before the, the return, before the resurrection, your sleep will be so pleasant because it's not a, um, an unconscious sleep, but a joyful sleep where there's nothing to interrupt your meditation upon the word in that night watch. And you'll be looking forward and anticipating the resurrection of your body.
right? Just like Ruth and Boaz. Can't wait till the sun comes up to get this thing done, right? He rushes around. Here's your six barleys. Now let me go talk to this guy. Let's seal this deal. Uh, so just kind of to, to recap these night watches, um, the, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the house of Adonai, the burning of the temple, it led to the exile, the final exile among the nations of the world. And so until that, that destruction and the wine press, until the nations are judged, until his disobedient children are judged in the wine press. Um, he is sitting here waiting in the night watches. And what anguish to think that it was due to their sins that he had to destroy his house. And now they're not repenting in exile. Instead of awaiting and waiting on him in the night watches, saying, what do I need to do to be prepared for the daylight? Instead, they are simply absorbing the sins of the nations in spite of their identity as one of his children. Right? So he longs to restore the temple. That's something that he does want to do. Because the, 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 the restoration of his temple comes with a restoration and a gathering of his people. Once they have repented, then he can gather them, just like with the sound of the shofar at Shavuot. They're all assembled there. All the tribes are assembled. So there's no more scattering at that point. Just like Ruth, she comes from Moab. She's gathered into the, the, the tribe of Judah between Passover and Shavuot. Uh, we tend to think of, you know, are not being gathered together until the shofar of the Feast of Trumpets. But there seems to be this preliminary step that we're taking, even in the land of our exile. What are we doing? We're stepping into the feasts. We're stepping into the temple services that um, can no longer be done in the literal place. But if we are his little sanctuaries, we're conducting these little temple services in our bodies. We are keeping his Sabbaths, even in the night watches. We are keeping his feasts, even in the night watches. We are sanctifying his house, even in the night watches. So in that sense, we are gathering, even if we're not physically all in one place, nevertheless, we are gathering into a realm of obedience. So Revelation uh, 14, we looked at this previously about the angel who swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Uh, and the wine press was trampled outside the city. And the blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia. Um, the, the principle here is, again, there's a vine of the earth, but there's also the vineyard Israel. And remember, the, the caution to Laodicea is, you're lukewarm. 
You're trying to act like the nations. You haven't separated yourself. You haven't remained vigilant in the, the night watches. So you're going to be treated just like the wicked of the earth. So when he starts gathering these clusters from the vine of the earth, there seems like there's no differentiation between them and the vineyard of Israel as it pertains to those who were lukewarm or had just turned wicked themselves. And instead of the wine being brought into the holy city, this wine press is one that is trampled outside the city. In other words, these are people who don't merit to come in. Now, does this mean they can never be saved? I don't think that. I just think repentance is way harder if, if you wait till the daylight has already broken. I think the repentance is way harder if you wait until the fall feasts. Uh, Revelation 19.15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So again, there's the sword, the sword of the word. We meditate upon this sword. We meditate upon his word in the night watches, like King David said. We are preparing in the night watches. But for those who don't prepare with the sword of the word in the night watches, this day will come in Revelation 19, 15, for his word, which has been such a love, such a meditation, such a comfort, such a resurrection to the righteous, that same sword will be used to strike down the nations. And for them, it will become a rod of iron. Uh, so let's look at a, a prophecy right here. Remember Gideon's battle. It has all these Passover symbols. If we look at the story of Gideon, and Judges 7, uh, he's baking matzah, um, the vision of the barley bread. All of, these, all of these things are things that we would associate with Passover. And so we know that the story of Gideon has de a definite Passover element. So we say, well, there's the trumpet there. What about the Feast of Trumpets? Well, remember, again, you blow trumpets over all the festivals. So here's what Gideon tells his army of 300 to do. He says, when I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets around the entire camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. But when they actually do it down in Judges 7.20, instead, the soldiers say a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They add the sword. So it's as if they're prophesying of a time of a final battle where there's going to be a sword for the Lord. What is it? The word. And so the Israel and the nations at this point can either yield to the sword of the word or be destroyed by it. Because remember, this whole problem started with the Midianites because Israel fell into idolatry with them. So the sword can be our meditation in the night seasons and a source of comfort and resurrection, or the sword can be wrath to the idolaters and the disobedient and the rebellious, right? And so let's look at Jeremiah 10, 13 and Jeremiah 51, 16. They're identical. Remember, the lion is roaring in the night watches. 
He's unhappy because his temple has been destroyed. The night watches the temple are destroyed. The hours of the temple service are destroyed. His people are scattered all over the world, but he wants to gather them. So look at this passage and see it's identical. It says, when he utters his voice, there is a roar of waters in the heavens. And when he makes the clouds ascend from the end of the earth, he makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. And then you slide down to Jeremiah 51, 16, you're getting toward the end of the book. He says the exact same thing. So what's happening here? Well, we know the, the waters often represent the nations. We know that he is enthroned upon uh, many waters. We know that, um, of course, it's going to be the, the harlot Babylon. Part of her work was to try to sit up on many waters. Who does she want to subdue? Who does she want to seduce? Not only Israel, but she also wants to subdue the nations of the earth. She's always posing, uh, just like the king of Babylon. He's always posing as the Holy One, trying to replace, trying to displace the throne in the kingdom of the Holy One. Always trying to usurp his power and authority. But when you hear the authentic voice, and then when you hear the roar of the waters in the heavens, there's waters in the heavens, just like there's waters on earth. And so often these waters will represent the peoples. Who is among the waters of the peoples? His scattered sheep. His sheaves. Remember the, the, the setting apart of the barley sheaf at the time of Pesach? And how even while they're still alive, they're bundled together for reaping. Their, their roots are still in the ground when they're bundled together. So it kind of goes with our, our lessons we had on the little flocks in the wilderness. How the rabbis say in the time of the footsteps that Messiah will form little flocks, even out there among the nations, in the wilderness of the peoples. And so just like little flocks and just like little sheaves of barley that he has grown up and the nations of the earth, and he'll start to bundle those little bundles together. He'll tie a cord around them to set them apart. So then when it's time for the son of man to reap, he's reaping a whole bundle of people. And what does he do? Uh, the, the song, the Shabbat song, Shir Hamalot, which is the song of ascents. What does he do? He went out uh, in tears, sowing his seed. But when he comes back in, he comes back in with joy. It says, bearing his sheaves with him. What's happening here? That which he has sown among the waters of the nation, those flocks that he has pastured and gathered among the flocks of the nations, they're out there among the roar of the many waters. His voice is like the roar of many waters because. Our voice speaks with his voice. We affirm him. We will do and we will hear. Whatever you say, we say. That's what Yeshua said. Whatever I hear the Father say, that's what I say. Whatever the Father does, that's what I do. So we're like little Yeshuas. We're conforming to the image of the Father. And if his voice roars in the waters and the heavens, then 
you should be able to hear our voices on earth among the waters of the nations. And then he says, he makes the clouds ascend from the end of the earth. Well, remember, he spread his people out to the ends of the earth among the nations. And now they're little, they start making clouds wherever they are. So we've got three symbols here. We've got the barley sheaves. We've got the little flocks of the great shepherd of the sheep. We know the son of man is going to reap the, the barley sheaves. We know Yeshua is uh, the seventh shepherd and the eighth prince that Amos prophesied that he would gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And all of a sudden they start being little clouds. They start um, forming into these clouds and it says they ascend from the end of the earth. Somehow these sheaves and these flocks, they start to, just like Shir uh, Malot, the song of ascents. Malot, it means to go up. You go up. They begin a resurrection path and they begin to ascend from the ends of the earth in a cloud. It says he makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouse. Now see the progression here? Even before the judgment begins, the lightning for the rain and the wind from his storehouses, remember Revelation, you have the angels of the four winds who are being told to hold back, hold back, don't start yet, don't start, don't start. Well, see, once those four angels are no longer withheld from beginning the judgment, and remember it says he has um, storehouses of snow in the book of Job, which are being held against the day of judgment. But the Proverbs 31 woman, it says her household has no fear of the snow for they're covered in scarlet. They're covered in the blood. They're covered in the redemption price of Yeshua. They have no fear of the storehouses of snow. They have no fear of the winds because their Messiah says, peace be still. Even though there's the roar of waters in the night seasons, Yeshua can say, peace be still, to the angels of the four winds, and they have to obey. So, yes, will there be judgment? There will. But it seems that this gathering of the righteous of the flocks and the sheaves, that it begins before the real judgment sets in. Now, where are they? We don't know, but they're a little bit up. Is it physically up? I don't know. Is it spiritually up? You bet. That's where you want to be. Uh, you know, what did uh, the angel say? Why do you stand there gazing into the heavens? Right? It's not something you perceive with the physical eye. It's going to be something that you hear and respond to. And so the ascension, the gathering of the saints begins. And then we see these four angels of the four winds turned loose and they start bringing forth his judgments from these storehouses where he has been storing that up for 2,000 years. And so just as the, the waters roar in the heavens with his voice, on earth, these bundles of sheaves and these flocks of sheep that are ascending into the clouds, I think they're also going to be roaring. Whatever he says, they will say. And that's pretty, I don't know about you guys, but that's pretty inspiring that he would make sure that these clouds begin to ascend 
from the ends of the earth. And what is protection? What is covenant? What is a promise? Uh, what is a relationship to the Ruths out there among the nations? At the very same time, it's going to be terrifying to the wicked and to the lukewarm. You know, what did Naomi say when she came back from Moab? She says, call me bitter. We made a mistake here. And, uh, you know, when you depart from the covenant, you make a mistake. He says, come on back. Leave your idols behind you. Leave your self-will behind you and listen to his voice. Begin to roar with his voice. Begin to be in pain over the loss of the temple the same way the lion of the tribe of Judah is in pain and anger and frustration. We need to reflect his voice. We need to roar like he roars. And like those souls being stored under the altar, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We want the restoration of the temple service because we want to be a blessing to those nations. We want those 12 tribes to be set up with those 12 gates. No, we don't want to see people trampled in a wine press outside of Jerusalem and not be able to, to have access. We know there's a narrow gate to Jerusalem, right? It comes with a price. But we, we certainly want to pray for those right now who are swimming around in a lukewarm soup of rebellion and self-will or apathy. We need to pray that they be raised up and begin to roar with obedience, even in the night seasons, that they would begin to meditate upon his word during the watches of the night, where they would wait patiently like Ruth to see, okay, Yeshua, how are you going to work this out? How are you going to do this? Uh, because remember, one of the traditions says that um, Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, the son of Joseph, he will defeat the forces of Gog and Magog at the gates of Jerusalem. He's going to work it out. He's going to make sure the judgment for us is favorable so that we never have to be separated from him again. That we can be a, a dwelling place for him in the same way that he has been a dwelling place for us among the nations. And that we can perform his service. Um, and you know, that's, that's one of the things that's believed. And I think scripture bears it out. If you'll read our newsletter this week, uh, we've got numerous scriptures in there. But it discusses how the, the reason we want to keep his commandments in this life is that um, the reward depends upon your service, not your salvation. That's a completely different issue. But see, once you enter in to his kingdom, now you have to rest. That's the picture of Shabbat. And so you invest while the master is gone. You invest his gifts that he's given you in the night seasons so that when he returns in the morning, he says, enter into your rest, that the rewards will be based on what was within your ability to do in your generation with the gifts that he gave you. You're not being compared to the next person. You're being compared to your own abilities. 
And so you will function in the kingdom. You will serve him in the kingdom based on what you have prepared beforehand. You don't, there's no advancement opportunities in the kingdom, so to speak. Can you make up gaps in your learning? Yes, because you invested. But if you buried everything he gave you and just said, it'll all be good when he gets back, then that which you failed to invest in his kingdom and obedience and, and listening for him, meditating upon him in the watches, doing, then that which you never invested, now that will be taken and given to those who invested to the best of their ability. So at the time you enter into the kingdom, you will serve him, yes. But it's, it's just like, you know, the priest serving in the temple. You're, you're functioning with what's already there. And this is why it's so important not to waste our time. Because once that resurrection occurs, now we will serve him according to how we served him in this lifetime. Remember, he's not comparing you to somebody else. He's comparing you to you and what you were capable of doing for him. Because now you serve in the kingdom. It says in Revelations, your deeds will follow after you. So the deeds that you did in this life are part of your rewards. And so much more, as we saw in, in the parable of the three servants. So much more. but they were actually earned in this life. And, and this is where we get confused sometimes because people think we're talking about earning your salvation, which you can't do. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Yeshua's parables, that your preparation, your, your faithfulness, your hearing and doing in this life are what are right now determining the rewards and the responsibilities that you will be given to serve in that kingdom. Whatever you began in this life in earnest, he'll let you complete that. But if you never began it, you can't finish what you never began. And so the, the exhortation here is don't be a lazy servant in the night watches. Just because you can't see the kingdom in the night watches doesn't mean you can't hear it. You can hear the sounds in the night watches, and your ear, your hearing will become much more acute in the night watches. And so when you hear his word, you do his word. The eyes are much more deceptive. Much more. Because how many times does it talk about not following after your own eyes? Right? You saw it, you were distracted by it, you were deceived by it. Eve thought it was a good fruit to eat. How many fruits have we eaten that we thought were a good idea at the time? They look good. But had we listened, it didn't sound like obedience to his word. It didn't sound holy. It didn't sound like life. So sometimes we have to put blinders on so we can hear better. I do that sometimes. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you're trying to listen and study something. I did this in college sometimes where I would tape lectures, especially 
professors I had a hard time <laughs> tracking with, I would record what they said. And then I would later play it back and I just close my eyes so I could focus on what I was hearing instead of all the things I wanted to be distracted, you know, that would distract me away from truly listening and hearing. And after, you know, you listen to it two or three times, okay, I get it now. Now I've internalized it. Well, that's the way he wants us to do his word. When you read his word, it's a process of internalizing in the night watches and preparing yourself so that when you have that opportunity to do something, you've already heard it and you know to do it. Uh, so let that encourage you going forward. Um, that it's in your hearing that you're going to be able to see. It's in your hearing that you're going to be able to see. Hearing comes first. Shema Israel, Hero Israel. And uh, that's the most difficult thing about remaining diligent in service is that because we cannot see his kingdom right now, we tend to forget that it's there and we're already there to some extent. That we are Ruth, we are already there to some extent. We have made that statement in our own way. We have made a profession of faith. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. Wherever you live, I will live, right? We said that. I'm following you. I'm not going to follow the ways of the idols. I accept Yeshua as my Messiah. I'm seeking after him. This is my new citizenship. And then we started on a hard path of those seven perfect sevens, the counting of the Omer. He takes that promise and then he tests that promise. Will you go out into the field every day and work when it's hot and it's dry and you're hungry and maybe you're not even gleaning enough to feed yourself and your mother-in-law who's very cranky, a little unappreciative at times, but do you just keep diligently working and listening and listening and listening and listening? Hanging on to that next word, which, which might bring that breakthrough. And when you do that, you catch the attention of your Boaz, of King Messiah. Who is this that's working so hard in my fields? You already have an identity with him because you have labored for him. It's evident that you're not going back to your idols. It's evident that you're going to take care of your neighbor as yourself, even the cranky ones. It's evident. And then when he sees you in the, the the first watch of the night saying, spread your covering over your servant. I want to be closer. When he sees that, he says, you know what? I'm going to take care of this for you. I'm going to bring you into places you never imagined when you were working out in that hot field. I'm going to take you into places you never imagined when you followed your cranky old mother-in-law. You were righteous. You were known in the gates already. And you were going to become a bride. There's just a few things I still have left to put in place, but you hang in there until the fall feasts, right? And that's what we're doing right now. Shavuot is coming. We're all going to say we will do and we will hear. And where I fall short, please measure me out six measures. Please give me six barleys to help me over this, right? 
please take away any doubts about my character, about my readiness, about my preparation to walk in your kingdom. And he'll do it. He'll be faithful. And then it's our responsibility to wear that seal until the resurrection of the dead. And then it's our responsibility, again, to be a light to others who might be apathetic, who might be rebellious, who are a little lukewarm. They don't really want you know, to deny Yeshua, but nevertheless, they deny his will in their lives. And so we can be that example. If you've got a Ruth attitude, it wasn't Naomi's attitude that changed Ruth's life, but it was her willingness to let her follow along and learn. It was Ruth's attitude that was part of transforming her experience. That's what Boaz noticed, her service, her diligence, and her great attitude, how humble she was. And she she says, who am I that you would even notice me? She calls herself, I believe it's a Nakriya, which is the lowest level of a stranger. There's three levels of a stranger. She calls herself the lowest, when in fact, she's already walking in covenant. So that's another message to us. You might already be walking in covenant the best way you understand, but don't go around bragging. Just say, who am I that you would notice your servant? Who am I that you would notice this stranger? And that gives him the opportunity to say, oh, baby, you're no stranger. I've been watching you. My heart's been with you for a long time. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.